Hello once again and welcome to this week's Realty Talk show. Only a fool assumes they know what an insurance policy actually covers. Unfortunately, they find out after an event that they're really not covered at all and it's far too late. That's when you feel like a bit of an ass. I hope that's not you. If we were to cover every possible type of event that might affect a residential property, the premium would be, would be so expensive that it would, would be unattainable. That's Wayne Johnson. Now, Wayne's a specialist landlord insurer. He's along to reveal what you might not know about the cover that you have. And that's going to be first up in this week's show. And then Bushy will be joined by Eliza Owen from CoreLogic. On average, compared to the broader Australian population, they're younger and they're more skilled. So that tends to increase Australia's productive capacity. Bushy and Eliza will catch up on the heated discussions around migration and its influence on the housing market. If this is your first time on the show, welcome. Uh, we're gonna f you'll find us on all podcast players and through the Southern Cross Old Stereo Network. And if you like the show, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Help us to continue to bring you the best guests every week. Join the conversation anytime on Facebook at the Property Hub Collective. Before we kick off the show, just a quick reminder to join us for our special Q&A this Monday night on the Property Hub Collective Facebook page from seven o'clock daylight saving time when Bushy, Eddie, Rusty and I will jump online to answer any questions that you might have. Go to our Facebook page now and reserve your place. We'll be back in just a moment as Bushy kicks off this week's show. Property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year. To make sure you maximise deductions, you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country. BMT Tax Depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry. They've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties Australia-wide. BMT guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation free quote. Realty Talk and your host, Bushy Martin. Now, it's a common misconception that your insurance covers absolutely everything. Landlords may think that they, they'll be reimbursed by an insurer for any and every kind of rental loss or damage, but sadly, this isn't the case. And often, you only discover this after the event when it's too late and you're left covering the often significant costs. So it's important that you know what your landlord insurance policy doesn't cover and or selecting a specialist insurer that gives you the best available protection. To dive into this rarely considered but very important subject and reveal what isn't normally covered with your landlord insurance along with some top tips, we're joined by Wayne Johnson, the State Manager of New South Wales and South Australia for Specialist Landlord Insurer EBM Rent Cover. So welcome back to Realty Talk, Wayne. Thank you very much, Bushy. Good to be here again. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Wayne, uh, this is a subject that very few people uh, spend much time thinking about at all, and they they just think that apples are uh, compared with apples when it comes to insurance, but clearly not the case. So to set the scene, why aren't landlords covered and reimbursed by an insurer for any kind of rental loss or damage? Okay. It's a balance between... Uh... The, uh, the the risk factor and the and the premium factor to be quite frank um, insurers need to construct products that are sustainable um, and, and to be quite frank if we were to cover every possible type of event that might affect a residential property the premium would be would be so expensive that it would, would be unattainable 
Um, and so we, we have what's called an underwriter, which assesses the risk and um, between them and, uh, and, and uh, the, the product uh, uh, retailer, uh, there's a need to, to work out how best we can structure this to include as much as we can, but at an affordable price. And look, I don't blame people. We, we spoke a little earlier about, um, uh, you know, looking at your health insurance and trying to compare your electricity bills. It is a difficult thing, but um, a specialist policy will make it as easy as possible because uh, there are no need for any add-ons or bolt-ons. It's very clear what you're covered for, but it is important to understand what you're not covered for. Absolutely right. Well, uh, to sort of uh, set the scene again for the, the whole exercise, can you start by giving us a bit of a a quick summary of what landlord insurance protections are not usually covered in standard policies. I think there's about seven different areas that we're going to yeah. dive into the detail later. Yeah, no, good. Well, foreseeable events, um, imminent events, um, uh, retrospective things that have happened in the past um, where building defects are involved, uh, pests and vermins, mice plagues, for example, uh, mould, mould is a big one worth a good discussion um, and also tenants contents and relocation which is, is well worth a discussion yeah awesome well uh, let's now sort of break these down individually and, and dive into the details of each uh, so starting with foreseeable events what are they and why aren't they generally covered Wayne? well foreseeable events are, are generally things like maintenance and wear and tear so these are things that residential property owners or any property owner uh, is expected to cover and should expect, um, you know, re replacing guttering, replacing roofing, ensuring that windows don't leak. They're the sorts of maintenance things that should be considered in any case. So uh, a policy won't cover the, the damage resulting from those sorts of things generally. There are some uh, circumstances where, where they would be considered, but as a rule, no. And the same with wear and tear, fair wear and tear. Um, I mean, to be fair to say, we have had some landlords that have uh, built a house 10 years ago and, and uh, expect that, you know, the walls are going to be <laughs> as they were when it was freshly painted. Uh, it does cause some headaches for property managers. We understand this, but fair wear and tear is expected and, and is reasonably expected. And, and if, it, if uh, an issue were to go to a residential tenancy tribunal, they're probably going to hear more in favour of the tenant than they are the landlord. So these are the things that we normally expect to have to attend to as a landlord yeah it's a, a part of owning an investment property think things are going to wear out over time and uh, why would you expect your insurance policy to cover any of that but but you're right you, there are some landlords who treat their their property like the Taj Mahal and expect it's going to be in gleaming yeah, brand new condition forever yeah. uh that's certainly getting the expectations right is a, a big part of where property managers earn their salt but uh, of course Let's now uh, look at the sort of imminent events in terms yeah. of what are they, why aren't they generally covered, and what's your top tip on these? Yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, imminent events are very topical over the last few years, bushfires and floods. So these are events that are on the radar, on the immediate radar. Insurers are able to and have the right to place an embargo on certain postcodes, certain areas in the event of an imminent event. And all insurers and underwriters have access to certain data that might uh, will alert them to these things happening. Um, and so an embargo is when you just cannot place cover or you cannot increase your cover. Um, and we uh, we produce a list, list uh, sometimes when bushfires are out, we might have three a day, three updates a day. But um, the top tip is, and uh, there goes a phone, which I knew would happen, uh, so I'm just turning it off. Uh, the top tip is this, get your cover well in advance uh, of the need for it. You can, a commencement date uh, can be made uh, two months out. 
um, any anything above that, you generally need to advise the insurer. Um, each insurer has a different uh, uh, a protocol on that, so you need to check with them. Um, and look, we have had cases where uh, people are buying new investment properties on the date of contract. They have an insurable interest, and uh, they go to place the insurance uh, embargoed suburb. So that's very tenuous when you've got a brand new property worth, you know, a build worth five hundred thousand, and you're left without it. So well in advance is uh, the top tip. Yeah, that's uh, very good advice. Uh, now, the next one's pretty obvious, but why aren't retrospective events generally covered by landlord insurance? And again, what's your top tip on this one? Yeah, well, retrospective, uh, in other words, it's happened in the past. Um, uh, look, we, we have had a case where we had a new property manager take over a portfolio, uh, discovered tenant damage and, and thought, okay, well, I'll place insurance and claim on it and was quite ignorant to the fact that that couldn't be done. Um, and the issue is that uh, something's happened in the past uh, outside the uh, the coverage period and we can't identify who's responsible, so there's no right of restitution. Um, I think uh, just make sure that if you're um, buying a property that uh, you have the usual building inspections, uh, strata units, you need particular care there. I mean, some of the four and five-year-old ones we're dealing with have got broken membranes, uh, waterproof membranes and tiling. Check that out thoroughly. Check with your strata insurer to see what sort of policy they have. Are there any conditions on it? And also check the excess. Too many, uh, sometimes they're two and $3,000. Too many strata owners uh, sign a little bit of paper at the AGM to uh, proxy their their input over to the strata manager and they naturally go and, and do whatever they think is easier. Uh, there are good ones out there, of course. I'm not knocking them all, but uh, just be wary of those things. Yeah, very good advice there, one. Now, let's turn to why building defects aren't generally covered and what landlords can do to mitigate this. Yeah, it's probably yeah, a little bit associated with the previous uh, with the previous uh, discussion. Yeah. Um, building defects uh, are structural. Um, they're either structural or they're they're um, an engineering problem. Uh, that is no certainly no fault of the property owners, uh, but for example, on a, on a strata unit, you might have a, a defective uh, installation of a roof that's causing excessive overflow and flooding into units. Um, and of course, there is a period where builders will cover that under the builder's warranty, um, but then when it slides out of the warranty period, then uh, it rests on the landlord or the strata. Um, I'm focusing a lot on strata because that's generally where a lot of the problems happen. So again, uh, I would make it my business to check out the full history of this property. Has it had any problems? Um, has anything been flagged? Uh, what sort of claim history do we have? Um, and that way you, you get a fair idea as to whether you can anticipate problems yourself. Yeah, good advice. And, and checking out the uh, credentials and the history of the actual developer and builder. Are, are, of course. Pretty useful in conjunction with having an independent building inspection completed. So make yeah. sure that you know what you're actually buying before you sign on the dotted line. So sure. uh, some great thoughts there. Uh, now, next subject, Wayne, why aren't pests and vermin generally covered? Well, they're considered a maintenance issue. If you have a possum running around in your ceiling, you know, most of us are going to try and get rid of it. Yeah, you know, not only for the building problem, but so we can sleep at night. Um, <laughs> you know, infestations of mice and rats and things like that. Uh, they should be considered maintenance issues. So they really come under the foreseeable event uh, category. Uh, yeah, 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 well said. Uh, now, uh, turning to an interesting one, which conjures up some uh, 
pretty good uh, images oh. here. Where, where does mould and mildew fit in and, oh, and what tip yeah. can you offer on this one? <laughs> oh, look, it's probably the number one topic we have, um, especially at particular times of the year. Yeah. Uh, mould uh, and mildew is considered definitely a maintenance issue. And, and, and I would be making it very clear as a property manager, and I know most do, to the tenant that they must keep this under control. Um, sometimes uh, there are problems within a building uh, when a tenant takes over. Uh, we're hoping that property managers will encourage landlords to set special types of paints and cleaning you can do that will, will pretty well eliminate. But unfortunately, uh, mould and mildew in very tiny uh, uh, concentrations can spread very easily. So if you're not on top of it, um, and there is a, a, a website which eludes me now, uh, but if you Google it, there's a, top, there's a government website that uh, uh, gives you some guidelines on how best to manage mould. So as a rule, it's not covered. It's a maintenance issue. Uh, there would be very few circumstances in which we would cover it. For example, let's say a building was flooded out, tenant had to move, and within a period of two weeks, there was a, a massive infestation of black mould, for example. Uh, that likely would be covered. But uh, as a rule, no. Yeah, and that applies to all insurers. You'll see it's all in every insurance policy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, it comes down to adequate ventilation generally. So if, uh, you know, the, it's the wet areas that generally uh, tend to attract this. So, you know, if your bathrooms, en suites are well ventilated, uh, then that's going to control most of it. And, and making sure the tenant turns on the exhaust fan uh, when they're having a shower will go a long way to uh, alleviating some of that. But, um, uh, you know, yeah, uh, so the, one... the, the landlord does have a responsibility and ensuring ventilation for example can you open your window slightly and lock it um you know i have seen bedroom windows where the inside of the window through the window is infected with mold and often the tenant doesn't even know that's the case but if you can't open your window slightly and keep it secure then we have a problem potentially yeah no it's a very good point mate uh, now the the last one's also pretty obvious but uh why aren't tenants contents covered uh, quite simply, there's no obligation under a Tenancy Act for the landlord to have responsibility in the event of uh, a defined event. Um, I know property managers do their very best to explain this to tenants at the time that they uh, take the tenancy out. You should get contents cover, landlord's not responsible, um, but we know what happens <laughs> invariably. Um, and the other thing too is that if the building uh, is flooded, for example, and becomes untenable and the tenant has to move out, um, the landlord is not responsible for relocation costs and alternative accommodation. So yep. The policy will cover rent loss while that uh, repair period is going on and there's no rent coming in, but uh, certainly not that relocation and alternative. So that's another thing that we get from time to time. So again, um, for landlords, just please make sure your property manager is um, explaining uh, that at, at the time of tenancy. In fact, a lot have in their management agreement an area where the tenant needs to sign. We understand. Yes. Yeah, good point. Uh, the ones that are on top of it are all, all over that. Uh, that really good thoughts there. Now, uh, I guess turning to uh, insurers themselves, uh, how does EBM rent cover differ from the standard off-the-shelf landlord insurance policies and what extra protections does EBM provide, uh, Wayne? Yeah. Well, um, EBM uh, rent cover has been developed over 30 years. Uh, let's see, uh, we actually pioneered the product over 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and and the growth and development of that product uh, has been done in consultation with the industry and landlords all the way through. I mentioned earlier about the need for insurers to balance, you know, risk and 
and premium to make sure that we can be sustainable. Uh, well, that's what uh, EBM rent cover has done over the 30 years. So um, banks and general insurers will, um, as I said, they'll call it a landlord insurance policy. Uh, but in general, there's some differences such as excesses on rent loss. Generally, you'll find a bank in general have an excess or, and or waiting period on rent loss. Yeah. Specialist policy like rent cover doesn't. Then we uh, look at damage. Um, you'll find that most banks and generals will cover malicious damage to a certain extent, again, with extended excesses, uh, but not accidental damage or a thing we call deliberate damage. So accidental and malicious are pretty easy to understand, but deliberate is where the tenant does something. They meant to do it, but they didn't think they were harming the property, like putting an old air conditioner in from Gumtree and bodgy wiring it and then leaving it, think it's an asset. You know, it's it's got to be restituted. Uh, so that's deliberate damage. So rent cover will cover the three, uh, malicious, deliberate and accidental damage. Then, of course, we've got pet damage. Uh, again, uh, some policies exclude that. Rent cover has uh, up to $70,000. Uh, pet doesn't need to be named on the lease to, or authorised so long as it's owned by the tenant. And, of course, we've uh, in a previous episode, we discussed uh, drug labs and contamination Um Again, uh, rent covers up to $70,000 uh, on that front. And we have a, a whole panel of, panel of experts right across Australia who are able to assist us in the event that that happens. Um, and in general too, um, and very importantly, during the claims period, uh, we have people that deal only uh, in landlord insurance claims. So um, in fact, we guarantee turnaround of five business days, unless it's a major fire over $70,000, fire or flood, uh, from the day we have everything we need to process it. Uh, in fact, our crew in 2022 won the industry's award for, for uh, claim service, not only in landlord insurance. So uh, yeah, they're a great mob, very experienced. Some of them have been there with us for over 15 years. And you make a very good point there, uh, Wayne, uh, my good wife, Sonia, who uh, uh, ran a very successful property management business for many years, got to see the, the good, the bad and the ugly of the whole claims procedure when it came to landlord and insurance claims. And uh, sadly, uh, a lot of the general insurers uh, can take months, if not sometimes years, to actually get around to uh, uh, processing and then paying the claim, which means that the landlord's left holding the can in the, in the process. So it's not only a matter of what's in and excluded from the uh, policy, it's also a matter of how quick that turnaround is in terms of the of impact on the uh, hip pocket. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you raised that one. And uh, again, Wayne, I want to thank you for opening our eyes to this very important subject. And it clearly reinforces that it's important that investors and their property managers engage a specialist landlord insurer that gives you the best possible coverage. Because as I keep saying, it's not a matter of if an issue is going to occur, but merely when. So in terms of minimising risk, cost and the stress that goes with it, always plan for the worst and then expect the best. And you can do this with specialist landlord insurance cover. So thanks again for sharing your very generous time here on Realty Talk today, Wayne. My pleasure. Thank you, Bushy. Goodbye, everybody. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. KnowHow has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less and live your legacy.
Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au. This is Realty Talk, powered by realty.com.au. Now, in recent times, overseas migration is frequently being called out in the media as one of the primary factors influencing the housing market. In the face of high interest rates, low consumer sentiment, and stretched housing affordability, property values and rents continue to rise, and vacancy rates are plummeting as net overseas migration hits record highs. National home values have increased 7.2% in the year to date, and rent values rose 6% over the same period. This has resulted in heated discussions around migration, which is drawing a lot of attention as housing affordability worsens. But there are many other factors driving property values in the rental market, and long-term, strategic migration policy shouldn't be influenced by short-term volatility in migration and property markets. So to put some much-needed balance back into this debate, the head of research at CoreLogic, Eliza Rowan, has just released a great report that unpacks five key insights into migration in the housing market, and she joins us now to reveal them. So welcome back to the show, Eliza. Thanks for having me, Bushy. Great to be here. Well, I really have enjoyed the report and it, it, it really sets the scene and, and really gets to the, the nub of the issue on this exercise. So just to get things underway, can you sort of start with a bit of a dot point list of the of the five insights you've uncovered that we all need to know about migration in the housing market before we then dive into the details? Absolutely. So there were five key kind of takeaways the first is that the housing tenure of overseas migrants skews towards the rental market in the short term. The second is that we are seeing some pretty crazy levels of overseas migration at the moment. But part of the reason for that is because we temporarily banned it in the first place. The third takeaway is that the migration ban created not only that volatility in patterns of migration, but as a result of that volatility in rental markets. Um, the fourth is that overseas migration isn't the only thing influencing house and rent values. Uh, and there are other things that you can do to try and reduce pressure on housing costs. And the final takeaway is that reducing the migration in intake could be part of a long-term strategy for Australia, but it does have some trade-offs and it's a really difficult thing to do. So I hope that some of those takeaways can be carried forward into what will undoubtedly be some pretty heated discussions around migration um, the end of this year and next. Yeah, totally agree. And very timely uh, to put that uh, paper out there. I want to drill into the details now and get your insights on all this. So I want to start with your thoughts on the immediacy or otherwise of the correlation between migrant arrivals and housing. Yeah, so there really is no firm relationship between overseas migration and sales volumes. If you think about it, we've got a record level of net overseas migration measured in the year to March from the ABS. It's sitting at 454,000 people net. Um, but sales volumes are kind of just sidelining. Annual sales volumes have been sitting at about 475,000, and that's actually a little bit below the historic decade average. So it's obviously not had much of an influence in pushing up sales volumes. 
But because we understand, again, from ABS insights into migrant settlement outcomes, that most people coming from overseas are going to be renters when they first get here, it pushes up the rental market when net overseas migration increases. And that's where we've seen really acute pressures in the housing market. So areas like Melbourne's southeast suburbs, Parramatta, the inner southwest of Sydney, um, Melbourne's western and inner suburbs, these are basically a collection of markets that have the highest exposure to overseas migration historically. And since we opened the borders back up post-COVID in July last year, those markets have seen an average increase in rates of 18%. Yeah, extremely well said. And just touching on COVID uh, uh, and the sort of artificial, unexpected uh, influence that's had, what, what impact and flow-on effects have the COVID border closures and the travel bans had on all of this uh, to, to dig into a bit more detail on it? So I guess it helps to remember that net overseas migration is made up of two key components, arrivals to Australia and departures from Australia. So if you're just looking at the arrivals, uh, we put a ban on migration from early 2020 to mid-2022. And that meant that a lot of people who wanted to travel to Australia through that period, maybe because they found a great course here at a university or they have family here that they wanted to be with, those people had to postpone their travel decisions. So once we open up the borders, we see this very rapid return in migration. And that's coming from people who decide at the time that they want to come to Australia, but also all of those people have postponed their decisions. So if you like, it's kind of a concentration of arrival activity. The second component, which it maybe isn't talked about as much, but has been highlighted by the ABS and their migration data, is the departure side of things. A lot of our migration is temporary migrants who are coming here to maybe do a course and then leave or stay here and work for a couple of years and then leave. Because we didn't have that many arrivals through COVID, now, fast forward two years, we don't have as many people departing the country. And that is coincided with all of that pent-up arrival activity. So the result is that you get this record high level of people arriving to the country but you've also got a substantial drop-off in people leaving. Because arrivals are, are high now, that departure situation will normalise in time and therefore net overseas migration will normalise over the next few years as well. But what we're seeing at the moment is a pretty extreme result of uh, extended closure of our borders to overseas arrivals. Very good point. And and. You know, just reinforcing uh, that insight that it's not just about the people coming in, it's about the people going out and the and the short-term bottleneck that's occurred as a, as a consequence of that. So uh, excellent point. Uh, what other factors are pushing up housing demand and rising costs to put this in context then, Eliza? There are so many factors that have led to an increase in housing values over time, and some of them are shorter-term effects of the pandemic. So we've talked a lot about shifts in household size. Lucy Ellis, who was that former Deputy Governor of Economics at the RBA, gave this great address last year on housing in the pandemic phase. And she pointed out that the reduction in average household size as people spread out across the market, seeking more space, seeking less exposure to COVID, 
That reduction led to dwelling demand um, domestically of 120,000 additional dwellings, um, as estimated by the RBA. And there are longer term factors as well. The fact that we've seen the depletion of public sector housing provision over time. You know, public housing approvals used to make up about eight or nine percent of total approvals in the 80s and 90s. It's less than two percent today. So that puts more pressure on your private housing market if you're, you're making less of an effort to um, put people in social and affordable housing. Um, there are other factors that have driven lower household sizes over time. The aging population, people not wanting to downsize. And these factors mean that over time, even if your population doesn't change at all, you need more dwellings to house the population and your demand goes up. And nothing illustrates that better, I think, than the actual period where borders were completely closed, and yet rents increased 16.5% nationally. And of course, values increased very strongly at a time when our borders were totally shut. So don't blame migrants <laughs> for the rising housing costs that we're seeing. There, there are so many other factors at play. Yeah, well said. And I think yeah, in some of your other recent correspondence, uh, you've indicated that just the the number of properties listed for sale is about forty percent down on the long long term average. So that that alone is going to put uh, upward pressure on 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 costs as a consequence of that. So you're yeah, right. So that... Yeah, in in some cities, but you're right. Nationally, it's about eighteen percent down from historic averages, and smaller cities like Brisbane, Adelaide. Um, and Perth, which again aren't the highest overseas migration cities, but those are the cities where we're seeing stock levels down by about forty percent. Yeah, extremely well said. So, um, uh, what trade-offs may occur then if, uh, God forbid, uh, migrations reduced uh, prematurely? Yeah. So, I mean, if you put a temporary cap on migration, I think that could be really problematic because we kind of already did that through COVID and we know that it's created a lot of volatility in housing markets, in the actual numbers of migration. If you announce to the world that you're putting a temporary cap on migration, then they sit there and buy time until the borders open back up. So I, that's probably not the way to go. Um, funnily enough, the government uh, earlier this year had been conducting a very comprehensive review into Australia's migration strategy. We haven't had much of a strategy around migration for decades. And I guess one of the things that they look at is that at the moment, we only really put a kind of cap in migration to permanent arrivals. We don't um, have a cap on temporary arrivals, students, um, people who are coming over for temporary work or, or holiday. So putting a more holistic um, target or cap on net overseas migration as a whole and doing it over a longer term could be beneficial for better planning our infrastructure, better planning our housing. I think there's an argument to that. But of course, if you reduce the intake of people, you potentially reduce economic demand because people who come here their workers, so they're adding to the labor supply. Um, they're demanding goods and services, so they're adding to economic demand, and that has helped to grow Australia's economy over time. The other thing about the migrant population is that, on average, compared to the broader Australian population, they're younger and they're more skilled. 
So that tends to increase Australia's productive capacity. We're even seeing some states like Western Australia, for example, is specifically targeting more migration to help with their housing prices. Um, they've announced this grant of $10,000 to help with the processing and location of uh, workers in construction, which could help to deliver the pipeline that, that they've got um, backed up in the dwelling space there as well. So there are some trade-offs if you try to cap, minimise migration, but I think nationally and where the government's going is that we probably are looking to move towards a long-term target that would help us to better manage our infrastructure and housing delivery. Yeah, extremely well said. So if we had to wrap all this up, what, what sort of summary conclusions can we draw from all of this, Eliza? Temporary bans on migration create extreme volatility in population and rents, confuses investors and creates additional pressure on rental markets down the line. So that's not the way to go. But uh, I think it's, a, it's okay to move towards this conversation about a longer term net overseas migration target, whether it's a number, whether it's a growth rate. Um, but just keep in mind that we're not here just because of migrants. <laughs> um, and there are many other factors to consider when it comes to demand and housing market. Yeah, extremely well said. I really want to uh, thank you for taking the time to share your very well-researched and qualified insights, Eliza, which again highlights that proper conditions are influenced by a whole host of interrelated dynamics and not just one indicator of the hour. And I, I guess underlying all this, the uh, fact that the a lot of our current housing concerns are more about supply they are demand. So uh, for anyone who's interested in learning more, I encourage them to uh, read your full article by going on to corelogic.com.au forward slash news research uh, and look for the article, Five Things to Know About Migration and the Housing Market, or click on the, the link in our show notes. And then uh, anyone listening in, I want you to jump on the Property Hub Collective Facebook community to share your thoughts on migration and property. And uh, thanks again for taking the time to share all of this with us today, Eliza. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, just before we go back to the show, uh, I want to spend a few seconds and tell you about a book that was sent to me that's now become my go-to reference when I'm looking for inspiration about property investment. You know, sometimes it's not about knowing all the answers. It's certainly more important to know what questions to ask. This book by Rasti, uh, is called The Property Wealth Blueprint. And it's one that you don't read just once and then put it away. It stays out as a reference. It's a book that you go back to time and time again, as I do, because it's packed with personal experience and with great examples of how to get property investment right. Uh, it's very frank, it's to the point. And as you can see here, uh, I've needed to bookmark several points. And I can tell you, that is a constant companion on my desk here. The remarkable thing is that it's absolutely free on Rasti's website, getrare.com.au. Get Rare, it's a gateway to a richer life. The website there for you again, getrare.com.au. So get this book, get it for yourself. Subscribe now to Realty Talk. It's out every week. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. A big thanks to Eliza and Wayne for a great show. Don't miss Realty Talk or get invested each week. And you'll do that by subscribing 
to the Property Hub wherever you're listening to or watching this show. You can also join the conversation on Facebook at the Property Hub Collective. And here's another reminder for you to join us for our special Q&A this Monday night on the Property Hub Collective Facebook page from 7 o'clock daylight saving time when Bushy, Eddie, Rusty and I will jump online to answer any questions that you might have. Go to that Facebook page now and reserve your spot. Thanks to our supporters and our content partners, realty.com.au, BMT, tax depreciation, know-how property finance, get rare property and Apiro marketing. I'm Kevin Turner and on behalf of Bushy and the Property Hub team, we look forward to seeing you again next week.